Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back to the Overview Effect with James Perrin. This is the podcast where I like to have big, bold, philosophical, purposeful, intimate, meaningful conversations with thought leaders, with entrepreneurs, with activists, with visionaries, not just about who they are and what they do, but how they see the world and how we need to see the world and how we need to be and show up in the world to create positive outcomes for nature and humanity. I'm your host, James Perrin. Of course, I want to start by acknowledging that today's episode, this podcast was recorded on Bundjalung country. I want to pay respects to members, elders, past, present and emerging of the Bundjalung community and acknowledge the thousands and thousands and thousands of years to which they have been and continue to be custodians of this beautiful land. Now, are you feeling burnt out at everything happening in the world at the moment? There's so much going on. There's lockdowns. There was the IPCC report on climate that was handed down. There is the Afghanistan crisis. There are ongoing environmental campaigns like PEP11 or to protect the Daintree and the Tarkine. There are these ever-increasing border restrictions and overlaid over all of this in the media and in social media, we have this increased polarization this polarity in society where people with differing beliefs are placing themselves and others in opposing camps and arguing and fighting with each other and it's getting more and more intense my hope is that today's conversation provides a bit of relief is a bit of an antidote to all of that you see my guest today is someone who spent his entire life and career trying to break down these borders these walls this division in society He's personally someone who has been an inspiration to me since I was at university. And to be honest, it's quite amazing to reflect now and think that a decade later, I'm friends with him and can sit down and have this kind of purposeful, intimate conversation. It's funny how the universe works sometimes. Anyway, he founded Engineers Without Borders back in 2003 in Australia and has since moved on to co-found Small Giants with his wife, which is an organization that creates and supports and nurtures businesses that shift us to a more equitable and regenerative world. They are truly trying to usher in the next economy, one that's based on passion and purpose and empathy. Small giants are hugely influential in this space. They were pioneers of the B Corp movement in Australia, and some of the organizations under their umbrella include Impact Investment Group, Dumbo Feather, The Sociable Weaver, and many more. And they now have the Small Giants Academy, which focuses on education and training and transformational journeys for leaders of the next economy. So in this conversation, we start by talking about engineers without borders and how this this concept, even the name without borders, implies that traditionally, normally, we have borders. Engineers, doctors, businesses, people in our daily lives, we have these borders, these walls that we put up. And how this creates this duality, this otherness in society. You know, there are always two sides. There's left and right. There's black and white. There's old and young. There's he and she. And how if you are one, then you must not be the other. And when we have this mentality, it can play out so destructively, particularly politically and in the business world. So we talk about that. We talk about how if we truly want to change and usher in the next economy, we have to move past this way of thinking. We've got to change our mindset. 
We also talk about capitalism. We need to change the rules of the game of capitalism. We talk about how it creates this hyper-competitiveness in society that infiltrates every aspect, including things like education and not-for-profits, let alone the political and business realm. But do we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater? We ask questions like, what is the best approach to climate change? Is it to put a price on everything? Should we be reducing everything to economic vocabulary? Where is the morality in capitalism? How do we decide what is worth monetary value versus what is valuable for other reasons? And so much more. This was a very broad and very wide-ranging conversation, and it was exactly the type of conversation that I think is needed in today's world. So please... Enjoy this one with founder of Engineers Without Borders of Australia, co-founder of Small Giants, and just generally wonderful human, Danny Almagor. Oh yeah, it's our little friend. Just that spiritual, liminal sort of moment of seeing the earth from the outside. Mm. And it was like a great expression, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a great concept. Maybe we'll just dive straight in, hey? Sure. Um, so, Danny, welcome to the show. Hey, mate. <laughs> thanks, for, um, thanks for having me here in your home and um, just sharing some of your time. Yeah, I'm excited. We've been wanting to have this conversation a long time, so yeah, yeah. I've been I've been chasing you for a while, so I finally pinned you down. <laughs> um, and and as you know, actually, you're probably better placed than any guest I've ever had to because um, you 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 studied aeronautical engineering. You know what the overview effect actually is. I don't yes. have to go into a um, tedious <laughs> monologue <laughs> introducing the concept. I can just jump straight in with you. Um, so maybe we do that. Maybe I, I just go it's, open up and say... It's true. You know, my, my dream actually was always to be an astronaut. Yes. So I studied aerospace engineering uh, specifically to be Captain Picard on a starship. So I'm still waiting for my experience of the overview <laughs> effect, but it's on my list of things. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, we, have, we all have those moments, right? Those pivotal moments in our life that shape kind of our perspective on the world and who we are and how we see the world. Um, so I'd love to hear one of those from you. Have you had a moment that's really kind of given you that similar kind of experience and made you go, wow, and kind of framed up you and how you see the world? Yeah, wow, that's so big, isn't it? Like like those moments in our lives that, that sort of define the next steps. Uh, I, I've had many, actually. Like it's hard for me to sort of pinpoint one that really defined the journey. Um, I remember uh, having a similar question asked when I started Engineers Without Borders. Mm. And and although I don't know if this was, was the moment, it was definitely was a big inspiration. And I was in India and it was, I think, year 2000 or 1999, I forget now, it's a long time ago. Um, but there was a big earthquake. And um, and I was traveling for, through Rajasthan, I think, to... to um, Alalabad or something like it's just been a long time since I've thought about this actually so I can't remember the details but I was traveling on a train and the train kind of shook and uh, and eventually we got into the station this was like you know a 
eight hour train ride, like big long Indian train rides. So a few hours later, we got into the train station and it was only then that we realized uh, what had happened, that there's been a huge earthquake. And, um, and I remember it was just pandemonium, like ambulances and some buildings had fallen down. Some some buildings had fallen down and, um, and people were rushing around and they basically said to us as tourists coming off the train, like, just get out of here. No more trains were coming, so it was buses. Jump on a bus and just get out. You know, we're close to the epicenter. There's been a huge earthquake, and I just remember I was studying engineering and um, and near the end of my degree, and I just thought like like not that I had much skill, but I was young and I was strong, and I knew first aid and I knew a little bit about building and engineering and I had first aid and 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 I just I remember sort of thinking to myself. I'm here, I'm ready, you know, I got a backpack, I had nowhere to go, I had lots of time, and I thought, um, use me, you know, I'm here to volunteer, I'm here to do whatever you need me to do, and there was just nowhere to contribute my skills, and I remember feeling at that point there, um, that first time, a real sense of like, we need to create the infrastructure for people to help, you know, like people want to help. I wanted to help. I wanted to be contributing, whatever it was. Maybe I could, you know, drive, you know, water, b- barrels of water in and out or carry stuff or, you know, whatever, make coffee for the people who really knew what they were doing. It didn't matter what, mm. right? But I was completely committed yep. to sort of supporting. And and I think a big part of that journey, Engineers at Borders, was one of the outcomes of that experience of like we needed infrastructure. And in that days, obviously, as an engineer, I was for other engineers like you hmm. to be able to, you know, to, to serve community, to serve the world, right? But but again, it's impossible to do on your own. You, know, you can often turn up as whatever it is that you want to contribute to. If you're on your own, it's very little opportunity to be able to do that, right? But in groups, especially when there's infrastructure attached, when there's an organization or, you know, you want to recycle, right? But if there's no recycling in town, it doesn't matter how much you want it, yes. right? If the infrastructure isn't there to contribute, to do the right thing, you can't. Yes. You just get on like I did, get on a bus and leave and go somewhere else. And that's when right? you feel helpless. You that's actually right. can't help because you wanted to and you're there and you, you're actually, well, I don't even know what to do. There's not even the, the role here for me or the social infrastructure for me to do that. That's right. And so that, that, that experience, I think, still sits with me as a lot of, even now in Small Giants, a lot of what we do is just try and solve for that problem. You know, a lot of people want to build sustainable homes. We did, right? Most of the time also it's coming from a personal experience. Mm. Of, you know, we wanted to renovate our house. We wanted to do it sustainably. I remember this is years and years ago, about maybe 15 years ago, when Barry and I were first together. We did, or 13 years, whatever it was. Um, and we did this renovation on our home. And I remember speaking to builders and saying to the builders, listen, we want, like, super green and I'd done a bit of the design myself like passive cooling through you know sort of windows high up to take advantage of you know hot air mm. rising and effects and and an outdoor pond so that it could you know evaporative cooling over the pond all this cool stuff right yeah you know recycle floorboards wanted to do all this stuff and I was speaking to the builder and the builder just didn't understand what we were talking about you know kind of new but not really mm-hmm. and it was really complicated for us to try and get this in and I remember even he said listen I have never used these types of materials because I suggested some materials, so I don't know if I can insure against them, right? I've never built with them. I don't know if this floor will buckle if I use what you're suggesting. Mm. You know, I've never built with this. Um, So I don't know if I want to take that risk. 
And it was the same thing. So in Small Giants, we sort of always ask the question, well, well, we want to do the right thing. How do we facilitate that happening? And that's when something like the Social Weaver, which is our sustainable uh, building company, was mm. born. Right? We said, well, that, that doesn't ever need to happen because what if we su- support you know, a building company that looks at this and says, we know exactly what you mean when you talk about a 10-star home or a carbon-neutral home, mm. and we know how to use phase change materials or recycled materials or whatever it is that we're trying to do. Mm. So you're always trying to get your head around, okay, what is the barrier for people to do the right thing or what is a barrier for people to contribute because most people want to? Yes. Well, mate, that is exactly what I felt when I was in my early 20s trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I, um, I think I've told you this story before, but I'm going to relate again, where I kind of stumbled into engineering. You know, no one actually knows what they want to do when they're 20, yeah. um, unless you want to be an astronaut. You know, it was great <laughs> that you had that figured out from the get-go. Um, but I kind of stumbled into it, was really not purpose-driven, only ever saw engineering as a a means to an end you know as a job um and you see all the you go to the careers expo and you see the mining and the oil and gas and the big cement companies and they're all the ones throwing pamphlets at you and you think okay well this is my life um but it wasn't until i actually came across engineers without borders through uni that and i got involved in that in like a local university chapter that i started to go whoa hang on a minute i could use my skills i could do something that's for the benefit of others yeah that was really the first time i actually felt that and i felt that i could experience that yeah and it's amazing i love hearing those stories <laughs> i mean yeah it makes my heart full yeah. <laughs> and then and then in, in more recent times like i guess to tie in this kind of overview concept just stepping back and thinking about the world bigger that the, even the name engineers without borders or doctors without borders it's quite interesting isn't it because what it's saying is that most engineers or traditionally engineers or doctors have borders, mm. you know, and yes. and that we only operate in pockets or we're cut off from – the name to me implies that most engineering doesn't serve the world. No, it's disconnected. I mean, it's true in, in every sense, in almost every part of our society, and I love that you're touching on even the name – because, yeah, I mean, obviously it didn't come up with the name engineers that borders, the without borders concept, and doctors have been unbelievable. And actually, a cool story is I met one of the founders of Doctors Without Borders. Oh, cool. Um, many, many, many years ago when I was just starting Engineers Without Borders. So, um, yeah, super, super amazing. Um, so, so lots of inspiration there, but the name does, it, it's, it's, um, there's a sense of the sense of disconnection of duality. You know, we always have to have borders and have have limits. You know, and we see it in every sense. You know, man and woman, and there's nothing in between. And and you know, um, and racial, black and white, or or Jewish and Muslim, or mm. or old people and young people, and you know, and it's like we create engineers and and artists, right, as if they're two separate yes. things. If you're, you're one, you're not the other. You're one and not the other. In yes. all of these examples. Samples, right yes. you know yes um and and it, it's you know it, it doesn't it does it's not true it's without borders right and this idea is so profound of trying to break down these barriers that create the other right in all of those like every old person was once a young person right <laughs> it's not they're not an other mm. you know that don't understand right yes um 
you know, and the same thing in, in all of those examples of, 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 of an interaction between them. And, and for me, even from Engineers at Borders, moving to small giants, again, that word which we took from a book written by a guy named Bo Burlingham, such a, an extraordinary writer and, and thinker around, around business. Um, and the book sort of spoke about these businesses that, that, that weren't just about profit, you know, it wasn't profit maximization. It was how do we hold the idea of passion and purpose with the idea of profit and good business strategy? Right? Mm. And again, that duality. So small giants is this, is this dichotomous concept, you know, like what is it? It's oxymoron. It's, a, yes. you know, it's, they're opposites, but they sit so beautifully together. Um, and I think maybe that's a bigger part of the conversation that we need to have. The overview effect stops seeing us as all these separate disconnected bits. It's all connected. It's all one. And it's true on, on, on every level. Like when I continually think about it, and maybe this is sort of the, the Buddhist influence on me. I've been going to Bhutan a lot lately and I think it's rubbing off, right? But that, that duality or even non-duality, you know, the, that we hold both. We hold these both ideas, you know. Mm. Um, you know, we, we're we're eternal and we're transient. You know, mm. um, all these things that we hold, and what does that mean when we start bringing it into our society? Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of that that other that putting perspective on the other, as you say, that creates so much of the. The, the kind of tension we see it with everything it's the it's that political party's fault yes it's, you know the billionaire's fault it's their fault it's and that causes so much destruction because first of all we um we outsource accountability we mm. go, well, it's not me it's them yeah their fault not mine um and it really it really creates that even further that disconnect we do it with with the environment yeah. You know, we're, we're damaging the environment as if we're separate to it. That's right. And, and we talk about like, you know, yeah, I, I love that. We, we have started talking about the environment as the other, mm. you know. Are you on that team or not on that team? It's like clean air doesn't have a team, yeah. right? Yeah, you yeah. Know, clean air is the ubiquitous benefit of everybody. Yeah. Young, old, rich, poor, you know, tiger, elephant, human, dolphin, <laughs> like clean air it's kind of like it's it's on everyone's team, right? <laughs> and that's and that's yes. a funny thing that that we do other, and and again to hold that duality on yeah. the othering, right? One is do we see the connection? And I think that the, you know we talk disconnection and connection as, as as those two concepts. Do we see the connection, right? Which is really important. You know, with love and empathy and all these words that we hold in every culture in every society we hold dear. Right? These aren't some hippie words. These are, mm. you know, whether Jesus said it or Muhammad said it or, or indigenous, you know, Australian, you know, cultures say it or, or Native American culture. It doesn't matter where you go, which religion, which faith, which wisdom tradition, you know, these are the ideas. Connection is what we're all fighting for. Right? Mm. But we also have to acknowledge that we, we want to also have our own little circle we we do sometimes like disconnection i want my family like my intimate family is special to me right um so yeah i'm not even sure where this is going but when i think about that it's it almost goes for me to a redesign of of our society Mm. around these these concepts of connection and disconnection and how do we create a society that encourages connection but also honors 
the uniqueness, the disconnection, or, or rather than disconnection, the, the separateness, which is also beautiful. Mm. You know, I am me and you are you, and I love basketball and you love footy, and that's cool too. I love Indian food and you love Italian food, and that's also okay. You know, we're connected, yeah. and we're also okay to be able to do different things. And I don't think we've got that right yet. No, we don't have that impermanence. We we go, that's that group, this is my group, and that's permanent, and that's that border, that's that wall, right? Yes. And when you do that, not only do you put blame on the other or um, provide the opportunity for blame to go to the other, but you also um, kind of lose your sovereignty in a way. If you go like, well, it's their fault, I can't do anything yeah. about it. You yeah. know, when, and it's, it's only when you go, hang on, there's no us versus them, it's just us. Yeah, and in it's that all us. you go, okay, well, I, whatever I'm hating, whatever I'm blaming, whatever I don't like in the world, in some way, shape, or form, I'm I'm a part of that too. Yeah, and then you start when you do that, you go, okay, well, then I have the opportunity to impact it. Mm. Right. Well, I felt that you know I felt that as a kid. So another big influence on me was um, I'm Jewish, and you know, and and love my Jewish culture and tradition. Although I'm not religious, I'm not observant. Um, and grew up with the Holocaust as a huge story, right? Um, in our in our collective um, experience and collective past, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor who who came out of Auschwitz when it was liberated. Wow. So he was sort of in in some of the worst conditions um, known to known to humans. And um, and so I spent a lot of my early childhood and, and, and teenage years really thinking about that. You know, it was a big part of the Jewish community. It was a big part of my own life and trying to understand the Nazis, trying to say, what, what does that mean and how does that happen? And a real epiphany I had was when I realized that that wasn't an other, right, that we could have easily have been them, you know, mm-hmm. that this isn't some crazy thing like humans – you know, like in the right conditions, and I don't know exactly what they are. We, we've got a, you know, suspicion. You go through a depression, you go through, you know, despair, and you come out the other side, and you look for a scapegoat for that despair, and and you persecute them. You know, I mean, that that's like seems to be quite a straightforward process. And what if I was on the other side of that? And what would I have been? And when I realised that, it changed my perspective of the concept of the other. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of having empathy and understanding. Not to say it's right, right? Remembering understanding someone doesn't mean that it's right. Yes, it's not to let them off the hook. It's not off the hook. It's yeah. the same thing. I met this unbelievable person who worked in prisons with um, with abusers, you know, like um, abusers of, of sexual, you know, violence and, and other forms of violence. And I just said, how do you find love for these people? Like, you know, it's really hard. And this guy is like really an angel he's like a saint on earth that just finds this this sense of 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 connection even to some of the the worst you know the people who've committed some of the worst crimes on the planet and he just said you know for every violent perpetrator i've met i see a child who had been a victim Mm. of violence you know and and by and large that's true and so i thought wow like again like there for the grace of God go I like I don't know what I would have been like in different circumstances so it kind of it, 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 it mellows this this othering right it mellows this idea that this is evil and rather that it is the system that we create mm. that creates now again it doesn't take blame off the people right I still think if you're a violent criminal you cannot just hang out you know 
free in our society and continue to perpetrate violence. That's not okay, right? But to look and just continue to blame the individuals for every act that the individual does Mm. seems absurd, just like I don't think those people who have succeeded, you know, get all the reward. Is Bill Gates just so brilliant that he deserved to be the richest guy in the world for all that long? Like, is he that much better than the rest of us? Mm. I don't think so. In the same way... The, the community, the society, the culture that he was brought up in, right, gave him in, in so many ways all the advantages and benefits to be able to achieve that which he achieved, right? Now, of course, there's some of it. You know, he was a good guy and he's smart and he, you know, he was able to take advantage of those, right? But again, he didn't choose his genes and he didn't choose his intellect. He didn't choose much at all of what it was about him that made him become the success story that he became. And in the same way, the, the violent perpetrator who didn't choose the genes and didn't choose the parents and didn't choose the environment, whether it was, you know, in Syria during a, you know, like mm. war-torn civil conflict or, or in, you know, slums of India or wherever it is, right? So, um, so I can hold that really gently, I guess, this idea of, of the other. And for me, you know, quite early on, I sort of realized that I could have gone either way. Mm. Um, and I think it's helped me just understand a little bit more. I still, obviously, you know, other people because a natural tendency is to do it, but totally. hopefully we're conscious of that bias and, you know, and yeah. bring it up and try and try and create a system. I think that's what I'm talking about. Maybe this is where my head is going. I'm sort of thinking, where where is this? How do we create a system that tries to hold us to our best selves? Like the earlier conversation, how do we create a system that encourages us to recycle, encourages us to volunteer, encourages us to help people? How do we create a system that encourages us to check and challenge our unconscious biases, to check and challenge our othering? Mm -hmm. How do we create a system that looks after the environment, that looks after people? So it's all systemic, right, rather than personal. And I want to take it away from the person, keep yes. on blaming people and saying, let's sit together, right? Diverse voices to design a system that works for as many as possible. Yeah. I think I, 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 think I agree with you there on the, the personal versus systemic thing. You know, like when we, when we go to the other and we say, well, it's, it's Trump's fault, mm. then um, – one, we that we, we kind of make ourselves helpless, yeah. Because um, well, I can't do anything about him. But two, we also go we, we we ignore the broader system and go, well, what are the conditions that allowed him to yes. be that way in that position of power? Completely. And how am I contributing to that? And I know I'm on the other side of the world, and I don't vote in that country. But how am I my purchasing habits? How am I conversations? Yes. How is everything that I'm doing um, perpetuating or feeding that system which allows that to Yes, yes. Right? Completely true, completely. And and then the second part of that, which is so beautiful, is what can I dream that could create something different? I mean, for me, that's why I get so connected to things like the B Corp, you know, Mm. B Corporation movement, because it's sort of saying, actually, let's dream a better way of doing business. Let's put purpose at least on par with profit and as far as I'm concerned, the greatest B Corps are putting purpose ahead of profit, yeah. right? And saying that is why we exist. We exist for a reason. Profit is a mechanism to continue 
to deliver on that purpose, right? Yes. You know, purpose is the reason and profit is the opportunity. It's like the fuel in the car. You know, like I don't fill my car with fuel. I've got an electric car, so it's even better. <laughs> but I don't fill my car with fuel because I love filling my car up. You know, I fill it up with fuel so that I can get to where I want to go. The car is a means to get somewhere and fuel is just the mechanism by which the car can get there, mm. right? One of. And profit is the same. Like if, you know, so for me, that's like a systems redesign of the concept of business. I love the idea that we can choose. I love business, right? I don't think that everything, you know, we should take away this idea of capitalism altogether. If capitalism, we understand it to be the opportunity to choose goods and services, right? And I get to choose whether I want to wear a Patagonia shirt or whether, whether I want to wear nudie jeans, mm. right? That's cool. But we have to change the rules of that game that it's not just about maximizing profit. It's not just that they're all fighting to extract as much as they can from you and me as consumers or users. It's a crazy word we use, like yeah. in the tech world that we're users. When I was a kid, that yes. used to be what we teased people at school. <laughs> You're a user would be the worst thing you could call someone, <laughs> right? You yes. know, and now like everyone's trying to get more users. It's yes. unbelievable. So like, like we can redesign that on a systemic level, you know, a paradigm shift, the way we think about business. And of course, legislate against it as well and create new things. And maybe we can start renewing this idea you know whether it's capitalism 2.0 or there's a new concept i've heard of the concept of capitalism mm. so you know uh, is there an opportunity where we say at the base of it it's not about the allocation of capital it's about the pursuit of happiness or joy or whatever word i mean i don't want to get attached to words here but i think you know hopefully your listeners understand when we talk about you know gross national happiness or, or joy as the purpose of our society and economy to try and bring as much joy to people as possible. Um, that's the purpose, you know, or connection maybe is even more profound than joy. Mm. How do we bring the most connection, the most love, the most, the most, you know, inter interdependence um, to each other. Uh, and then the idea of trade is a mechanism to help achieve that. Right. So I heard this capitalism. I thought that was really cool. I love that. It's kind of like what comes up for me. And I mean, we were talking about kids before, and I've got my son. And, you know, when we play games, he wants to win. And we all know, we've all seen the competitive child. And we all, as parents, have said, guys, the purpose is not to win. The purpose is to enjoy what you're doing, you know, and enjoy yeah. the, the process of trying to perform to your best and have the outcomes of enjoying the game we all know that yeah. but why do we get caught up in this broader cycle of yeah. you know oh the goal is to make as much profit as possible and um yeah winning 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 how whatever do we the, win yeah even like means. even we talk about words you know users competition you know competitors yes that's that, that's that othering again you know in, in business probably someone if you met them down at the the beach you'd probably be great friends with them but when you find that they're a business competitor to you instantly you see them differently yeah and you want to crush them i mean like like it's crazy right and it's an interesting thing so let's come back to that dichotomy again we've got the idea that we talk about we've got the idea of of competitive and you know that that, that sense and that's real like that's a real part of you know human behavior and human psychology and then we've got the collaborative you know the the connection part and that's real too 
I think in our current society, what we've done is we've overemphasized the competitive nature. So, you know, when we start at school, I mean, you have to even now compete to get into a school. You know, yes. like you put your name on the register, and you you pay. You've got kids, and I've got kids, and, and you know, some people were saying, you know, the kids three years old, and they're like, oh. You're a bit late. You should have registered them earlier to really get into this, you know, the good Steiner school in Byron or, you know, the private school in Sydney or whatever it is, right? Like it's crazy. So competition is there from almost when they're born. And then when they go to school, um, you know, so much of our education system is about competing. You know, the marks by year 12, you get measured against everyone else. You know, did you get 84 or did you get 92 or 97? Mm-hmm. Like what percentage are you compared to everyone else? So everything about it, then you get into the university, get into the workforce, you, you know, wherever you are, right, it's competitive. So we've, we've, hyper, we've, we've created a hyper-competitive environment where our brains are always, play, you know, which footy team every on the weekend, like everything is competitive, right? Um, so our brains are constantly in this mild stress mindset of competition, of scarcity, of win or lose. You know, the lion is sitting in front of us in the room, right? And it's either me or the lion. Mm. Always, right? That's mm-hmm. what we've become. And there are some times where that's really good, right? Like I reckon, you know, I love the Olympics. And if that's where you're going to compete, I think that's really cool. But, I mean, you know, we're competing for, you know, the grade five talent quest to get the, the, you know, to get the thing like, like there's a big difference between saying, you know, there are some elements of society where competition is really cool. Right. And it'll bring out the best in us. Um, And so it's not an evil thing. It's just when it takes over almost every part of our society, you know, even nonprofits who are trying to change the world are competing. Totally. So the question is, can we find that on that duality? Can we find that balance? Can we find that in between where we say, yeah, there are some, places where hyper competition are important there are some places where we should remove competition entirely things like maybe organ donations right where we're not competing you can't buy your way into organ donations you can't buy your way into quality healthcare. these are the kind of things like public hospitals where they say anybody comes in right we we do not create a hierarchy other than hierarchy of needs mm. right of course you know come in with you know, bleeding from your, your your head, right? But other than that, like like there is no competition for resources there. Those who need it will get it, mm. right? That's the ideal. So you've got those two extremes, and then a whole lot of place in between, right? And I wonder what we'd create if we started doing that. Yes. Well, it's, you know, we hear a lot of people who kind of say, well, the problem is capitalism, and mm. we need to get rid of that. We need to break down capitalism, and that's the problem. And... As we have this conversation, I'm even thinking, well, that's that's that same mentality of like that's the other. The other is capitalism, yes. right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and and so what I'm hearing from you is going, well, no, it's it's not that. It's the the rules of the game, I guess you could call it. I mean, it reminds me. I read a I read all the Dumbo Feather articles because yeah. it's one of my inspirations behind this podcast, to be honest. But um, you you wrote a an article it was a while ago now, and I think it was called the midwife and the hospice worker, yes. and you likened our economic system to a patient yes and he kind of said well we've currently got it on life support in the hospital our mentality is treating it like a hospital worker how do we move it to hospice and care gracefully let it 
you know, transform and then move to midwife and then bring it in in a new form. And so is that, do you see, I guess what I'm getting to is like, you're not an anti-capitalist. You're not going, no, capitalism no. is the problem and we need to redesign the whole system it, or, or come up with a new system. You're kind of saying, no, this, this could work. It's the way in which we're operating it. Yeah, I mean, firstly, capitalism as a term is seen very differently. I mean, if you go to America uh, and you go to Sweden, right, they're both capitalist societies and they work very differently, right? Still within the frame, still within the frame of, you know, we allocate resources, we, we aren't trying to control those resources, trying to create rules and allow those resources to move freely within the rules, mm. right? That's, I think, capitalism as opposed to, you know, things where where we control all the resources through some kind of, you know, dictatorship or whether there's communism where no one controls the resources or, or they're, they're all shared and there's just some organizing body there. But, um, but within that, there are so many different ways you can do that. And I think the midwife and the hospice worker was asking, and I don't know if it's capitalism or not, you know, I'm not attached um, you know, to, to that as a particular outcome if you know, somebody came up with something else. Um, but I think what we're asking is what works well in our system and what is not working well. And you look at what not, what's not working well from two perspectives. One is a very practical one. So in other words, climate change. Climate change is a symptom of our economic system. It is not like in and of itself the fossil fuel industry. It's a symptom of the economic system, which the fossil fuel industry is part of, mm. you know. Like, again, we can't just blame them because um, it came up as a response to an economic system mm. where we need a power. Um, so, so we look at that and say, well, that's a really unfortunate symptom of our current economic system. So we don't want to take that, right, that part of that system which caused that, um, that outcome which is climate change or the destruction of our oceans or slavery, you know, those parts of the economic system we don't want to take with us. That's a practical thing. The other one is a philosophical question. There's a moral conversation and maybe slavery sits more on the moral conversation than the practical one. You know, I don't think anybody like went out to destroy the, the climate, you know, or destroy the ozone layer. It was just a, just a response to I think on a moral question, we have to ask, not only do we want to look at what the practical outcomes of our system are, but what are, what are the moral limits? What are the rules in which we were willing to play? You know, um, even if we get a good outcome, mm. are we prepared, you know, whatever good outcome means? Are we prepared to, to betray our morals there? And for me, that comes to questions like, do we want to commoditize the environment in order to save our planet? you know, from climate change as an example, is the best answer that we just put a price on everything. Mm. We put a price on clean air. We put a price on a tree. So a tree standing up is $30 and a tree lying down after it's been chopped is $28. Therefore, we should keep our forests, right? You know, like slavery, a slave there and a free person there and the economic value, like, one part is conversations around the practical outcome. The other part is who do we want to be, mm. right? Like I don't care if a tree lying down in our economic system is worth $50 and a tree standing up is worth zero, right? We need to value forests. Yes. We need to value trees. Now, when I look at that, two things come up. One is how do we create the sacred again? That human life is sacred. We cannot buy and sell human lives. Can't. Not okay, Right. And forests are sacred. We cannot just destroy forests, 
you know, and expect no outcome to our ecosystem. So the sacredness, and then we have to recreate this, the, the economic system right, that doesn't disincentivize us to try and make the sacred profane, to try and turn the sacred into another commodity, like human life or forests or clean water or clean air. Right? Mm. So the mindset comes in. It's not a capitalism versus something else conversation. It's what's working well. You know, and what isn't working. And those are examples of what's not working, both on a practical level and on a philosophical and moral level. Doesn't yeah. work for me, right? And then what is working? I love innovation. I love the idea that if someone gets sick now with asthma, we can take them to hospital and we've got all these machines that can look after them, right? And keep them alive. Or if we get COVID, we have an opportunity. I mean, there's many of these, you know, natural things will happen or an earthquake, right? And we have all these technologies that can come and rescue people from the rubble in an earthquake or find a vaccine for an outbreak, an epidemic, you know, like that stuff's amazing. And our system is really good at doing that as well, right? So the midwife and the hospice worker kind of asked the question, we need to hospice the old system, the old system that has some amazing things in it and some really destructive things in it. Right? And we need to, to, like a phoenix, I think a phoenix might even be a better <laughs> thing, you know, allow that right, to, to transform and through that, you know, the hospice that and midwife the new thing that comes from that right? and the new economic system. And the best thing when you see old people and transforming that wisdom to the new generation is they pass on the best that they have. They pass on the greatest for the wisdom. And the really wise old people will say, and this is where I screwed up, you know, mm. I did this when I was young and that was really dumb, right? And if I'm going to teach you something, you know, anything at all, right, let me teach you the things that I think are really valuable and the things that I wouldn't do again. And that's the conversation around the midwife and the hospice worker, right? It is what do we take from the old system that we think is wonderful and what do we leave behind, mm. you know? And do you think that, that that change is going to come from pulling, I guess, pulling levers or trying to change the rules of the game, mm. which is, I guess you could say, is a top-down kind of approach? Yeah. And we're seeing, we're seeing businesses that are maximizing, you know, going heavy into renewables and going heavy into ocean cleanup tech and all mm. those sorts of things. And they're great. Those are really great. I'm, you know, back a lot of these kind of companies and my friend's involved in them um however is is the intention behind that is like well we're doing it your your example of the value of a tree yeah unsaid in that is well if the tree wasn't worth much we'd cut we'd be happy to cut it down yeah you know so it's kind of like i think that that this that what what we're talking about is a more of a mentality shift and yeah. a, I think it's got to be more of a collective, bottom yeah, collective up, consciousness. collective yes. consciousness approach, which is much harder. <laughs> it wouldn't yeah. it be easy if we could just pull a few economic levers and well, that's tax right. that and put some money here and that would fix all of our problems. But I think it's these, these, these conversations, these mentality shift, the, not changing the rules of the game, but changing the way we play it. Yes, yes. Changing, changing the way we think about playing it even, you know. Mm. It's like it is a consciousness conversation. And it's a hard one because one part of me um, 
you know, again, I go to metaphors. You've got the emergency room, you know, and then you can make the roads safer, right? And we need both. We need to make the roads safer. But right now we also need the emergency room for those people who have accidents on our unsafe roads, you know, because it'll take time to do both. And you sort of said, how do we get to that shift? Um, you can get there through some massive tragedy, you know, a global war, a global pandemic, you know, etc. that just resets, you know, it's like rebooting your computer, you turn it off and on again, and it's like, you know, starts anew. Um, the problem with, with the calamities, and, you know, this pandemic has been bad, but not so terrible, right, as it could have been. Mm. Um, you know, we're talking about a few million people losing their lives, but, you know, previous pandemics were tens of millions and potentially hundreds of millions. And you could perceive a pandemic or a war that actually takes way more than that, a billion people and pushes pushes way more people into poverty than this did, right? And that's my fear. So the, so the rebooting, right, comes with an enormous cost, a cost that, like, I can't even contemplate. Like, it makes me, it, it makes me just, like, my heart will break, if I think about that too deeply. Um, so I do think that's one way. That is absolutely one option, this, this global catastrophic reset. Um, but the pain will be overwhelming. I mean, you know, the, the, the psychological damage on the other side of that. I think this pandemic is going to create a very long-term psychological consequence, you know, on loneliness, on on, you know, I mean, you know, how many businesses have fallen globally, mm. um, you know, how many people have, have been affected by it, by losing loved ones, just on that level. I mean, you can't, you know, put, put it put a 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times, you know, magnitude on this, um, and it's unthinkable. So that's option one. Um, I'd prefer not to go there. If we can avoid that, if we can avoid some global catastrophe on, on a scale that we haven't experienced in our lifetimes, let's avoid it, right? That's what we're talking about. So the other option is incremental change. And that is what you're talking about, which is how do we then adjust the system? You know, we can't, if we adjust it too little, we won't change quick enough. Mm. You know, if we adjust it too hard, we'll trigger this calamity. Right, you know, whether it's a global conflict or you know, huge global conflict or something other. So we have to push it hard enough to create meaningful change, but not too hard that we break the system entirely. And that's what I think we're trying to do. That's what Small Giants is about. That's what the B Corporation movement is about. I think, you know, shifting from petrol cars to electric cars. You know, we had the Prius. You know, we didn't go all out and say stop now, and then suddenly you had a global stop on transport, right? I think we can move a bit faster and you're starting to see it. It's so exciting. You know, com companies and countries are setting targets of 2030, no more petrol cars mm. coming out of our company or, you know, being driven in London or whatever, these exciting things. And we're starting to see those, the, um, the, the screws being pushed a bit harder on some of these changes and, um, you know, more B Corps, more, uh, uh, you know, impact investing, I think, is a huge, huge transition. It's not the answer. And that's, I guess that's my point. My point is that these things are transitions to mm -hmm. something. I don't know what that something is yet. Yeah. Not quite sure. It's still too far out, right? It is. And, and we, we think in human timescales, and it's quite often shorter, we think in like 
we want this done now or in the next year or in the next two years or whatever. But then there's that kind of overview effect experience again of stepping back and seeing the history of time and seeing us as humanity. Something that excites me when I get into this mental space is going, do you know what? We have only been thinking, we're the only species that we know of that has um, become self-aware enough yeah. to know that we've ha- we have a negative impact on the world and ourselves and we're actually doing something about it and it's slow it is slow yeah. in our human time scale but in in our in our in our personal time scale but in the time scale of humanity yeah. it is such a sliver and mm. the transition that we are going through which could be hundreds of years um is still very much a fraction of human existence yeah. and it's actually really exciting that we live in this moment where this is happening and it, it's painful it and it's clunky and it's awkward and we don't know exactly where it's going to land, but we have that self-awareness and we are having conversations like this and we're, you know, th- this has never happened before in yeah, yeah there's, history. You're, you're right. And there is hope. I mean, you know, I do think we are transitioning. I think we are. Um, the question in my mind is not will we ultimately transition to the other side of this, which is a next economy, because the whatever the next economy is, there'll be problems with that one. And the, mm. the next generation will have to create the next economy and they'll, they'll have the conversation we're having now saying, you know, oh, it was great. We did these great things, but there were still some problems and let's do a better one. So let's just mm. talk about the next rather than the, the, you know, the, the new one that will replace. But, but we are having these conversations. I have no doubt that we will transition. Our question is, right, can we transition with the least amount of pain and suffering to humans and the planet? That's my question. Mm. I have no doubt. Climate change is really bad, but I don't think it's the end of life on Earth. I mean, the climate has been different in different periods of, of, of existence on the planet. Right? Life will continue. Likely, even humankind will continue. My passion or my, my drive is to say, can we find a way to transition right, with the least amount of pain? Because that's like that's there's a there's a nobility in that question. Right? Can we transition where we don't have to have three billion people experience suffering and poverty and you know the the worst effects of climate change? Can we make that a billion? In fact, can we make it half a billion? In fact, can we make it none? You know that would be the dream. Right? Mm. So our question for me to your hopeful point is exactly that. And some of the thinking around that which you mentioned, which I love, is like there's um. There's a book called The Good Ancestor by Roman Kaznarik, which I think is beautiful. And, and it plays on the idea of a, the a North American saying, I don't know which culture specifically it's from, but that seventh generation thinking. You know, can we think seven generations ahead? And from a human perspective, I mean, that's pretty long-term thinking. From a overview effect perspective, it's just slither in time. Like mm. you said, it's nothing. But even if we can get our heads into into one, two, three generations, ultimately if we get our heads into seven generations, I think the system we create, or, you know, as I said, if, we, if we're talking about um, incrementally adjusting the system, if we do it through that mindset, that consciousness, that lens, right, I think we will get a pretty good, pretty good system. And we can only look to the Indigenous in Australia as an example of this, you know, broad series of cultures. You know, you know, a couple of hundred different um, different groups 
that were able to have that mindset, a long-term mindset, and created a culture that lasted for tens of thousands of years. Mm. You know, sustainably. Sure, there were problems, and I'm sure they had the same conversations in each generation of like, oh, I reckon we can do this bit better. No question. Like all everything, nothing's perfect, right? But we ask the question of can we create a set of rules, a set of systems, a cultural inter sorry a, a societal relationship an economy that allows us to continue in perpetuity or for thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of years without destroying both ourselves and the planet i think the answer is yes because we've seen it before it's super hopeful mm. it's exciting when you when we frame it that way which is the which is opposing to everything we're bombarded with on a daily basis which is we're doomed or this is bad or this person did that or this is happening here and there is all this pain and suffering and there is are all of these awful things happening in our world but we also have to hold this this hopeful mentality and this imaginative as you said how can we not only not outsource and go they're the bad guys but also how can we hold that 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 um energy and that that question of what could how can we imagine what the best could look like or how can we imagine a better way? Yeah. That's a really, that's something that we don't often do or at least have in our day-to-day society is like just that word imagine. Yeah. Imagine what it could be like. Yeah. And yeah. holding both. I think that's, it, maybe we, we like as we come around, we come back to the first concept, which is holding both. Mm. My, my father passed away last year and, um, and you know, most people have experienced death and 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 mortality whether it's their own you know being you know close to death themselves or others that they love and there's a real sadness attached to that and grief and there's also an unbelievable joy and openness that comes with that you know if you allow it to to seep in um and it is through our mortality that we experience life and all the joys of life and all the beauty of life you know, it's in those moments where, you know, I was sitting with my dad in the days before he died and we we're sitting in the garden and we were talking about the essence of life, right? And the joy that he has had throughout, you know, living for 70 something years on the planet and, and what's important in, the, in life, you know, and why it's so special in those moments before he died. So... Yeah, I, I want to hold both. I want to hold joy and I want to hold grief. I want to hold, you know, wisdom and 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 you know, ignorance. I want to, I want to be able to hold it all. And I think that's, um, you know, that's there's a, a beautiful opportunity for us to create something that connects us to to all sides. Mm. Wonderful, Danny. I reckon um, that's a great place to leave it. And how good that we can sit quote engineer to engineer and have this kind of conversation you know it's um it's really important these kind of long form deep big picture conversations um, yeah thanks so i want to say thank you not only for your time and holding this conversation with me but also you know thank you for all of your work and everything that you continue to do out in the world and put out there in the world it's certainly inspired me multiple times engineers about borders and small giants and dumbo feather and um it's it's awesome so i just want to genuinely say thank you Thanks so much. It's been a real honor. (laughs) Great.